Welcome to the Self-Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at Self-Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends. How are you doing today? Resounding, I love it. Glad that you are well. It's Pentecost Sunday, this moment that has been talked about for a long time as, as really the birth of the church. It's this moment 2,000 years ago where a group of people, uh, a kind of small group of people, a kind of scared group of people, go from being just uh, a sort of closeted group to this whole movement that you, if you're a follower of Jesus today, are a part of 2,000 years later, 2,000 years later, this thing is still going. And so today on Pentecost Sunday, we're going to do what the early church did. This early church, this movement, a load of people, 3,000 joined them that day. Now, that may not happen today, just to give you a warning. We may not have 3,000 people flood the doors, but they did celebrate those people that came into the church community through this old process over here of baptism. They probably used a river. I suggested the Platte River. Apparently, it was not a good idea. Generally, the, the wisdom of doing that was, was, it didn't go down well. But we do have a horse trough. No horses have been near it. It is clean. Uh, it is somewhat warm. We have a heater. I'm not sure it worked to its full capacity. So it's, it's tepid, maybe is the word we're looking for. But these guys are students, most of them. They'll get over it. And what we will do is we'll celebrate these guys by dunking them in water depending on how good they have been and what their parents say, we may bring them back up. At one point, we may hold them back down a little longer. But baptism has these roots in something incredible. What these guys are doing today is special. Uh, but it is not special because of the ceremony. It's special because that ceremony represents something that has already happened. There is a life change that has happened in them. There's this moment where they responded to who Jesus is, and now we celebrate that through this ancient ritual of baptism. We celebrate the decision that each one of them has made. And so I'm hoping this becomes this grand tradition here at South, where year after year on this Pentecost Sunday, this birth of the church, we celebrate that by welcoming new people into it through this incredible act of baptism. But first, we have some teaching to do, or I have some teaching to do, you have some listening to do, and we're going to jump into a new series going through this book, Luke. Luke is one of the first biographies of Jesus' life. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, that's fine. You can jump in with us. And Luke is a particular type of storyteller. Luke loves his details. He's the longest of all of the writers, the biographers of Jesus' life. And when I say biography, I don't mean biography as you probably know it. A a modern biography really is just about capturing every detail of somebody's life. An ancient biography was more interested in using that to storytell. It would pick out particular moments and say, these are the significant moments. And Luke does that. But he, more than any of the others, says, I've gone back to the start because I want you to know for sure what you believe. Let me read you the first couple of lines. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled amongst us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of things that you have been taught. Maybe you can already capture from the beginning, this guy talks in some sophisticated language. Some of the other writers, they're they're a bit more sort of, maybe common is the word. Mark, one of the writers will say, Jesus did this. 
And then he did this, and then he did this, and then he did this, and this, and this, and it goes on like that. Whereas, whereas Luke is more, Jesus was sitting by the side of the road whilst he was there. It's very whilst and wither and thither and all of those types of language. It's very sophisticated, detailed sort of biography. And he takes everything from the beginning and says, I'm going to give you the details so that you can know these things you believe, this story that is so good, it almost seems too good to be true. You could know the basis that you're believing that on. I want you to know how it began. He goes back and he searches through Jesus' earliest moments, the birth and all of those stories, and takes them and gives us the details. We're going to follow this guy, Luke, as he talks about Jesus' life, but we're going to do it in a very particular way. We could go verse by verse, but that would take us years, and so maybe that's a Bible study that you'd like to do by yourself. It's, it's a thing that you'd like to explore. We're just going to take one type of story from this gospel account from this biography. We're going to look at every time Jesus sits at a table with someone. Because think about how strange this book is to you. There's so many things in this book that you just can't, I just can't compute. It's a different world. And yet, for thousands of years, people have been gathering around tables. We're going to follow every time Jesus did this. And think about all the occasions that you have gathered around a table. Maybe there's been moments where you've had a lingering conversation. You've, you've talked and you've said, I will be best friends with these people for the rest of my life. There's something about them that I love. We're going to become close just based on tonight. Maybe you've had a romantic conversation. You've talked to someone one-on-one -on -one over a meal and said, I think we're destined to be together forever. Maybe you've had one of those deep sort of conversations where your life has changed significantly. And maybe you've just had many of those times where you've gathered with friends and you've always had a plan that the conversation will go from the table to a sitting area of some kind, and yet you've just never moved. And hours and hours later, it feels like the moments have just, have just have gone. It's just been that joyous encounter, those conversations that have just meant so much, those moments. And Jesus has these different conversations with people during this book, Luke. Sometimes he sits with enemies. Sometimes he sits with friends. Sometimes he sits with people that are very different to him. Sometimes he sits with people that are very similar to him. But what we see time and time again is every time Jesus sits with someone, something life-changing happens. There's something about his approach to this table that is life-changing. So we're going to jump into Luke chapter 5 in a couple of minutes. But before I do that, let me say this. Over the next few months, what we're going to do is we're going to start with Luke, but we're going to move on to Acts, because in your Bible that you have in front of you, or on your phone, or on your iPad screen... Those are two books, but in reality, they're one book. It's the same author, and this author, he writes more of the New Testament than any other author. When we think about the history of the early church, Luke gives us more words than anybody else, and he gives us this detailed information that tells us what Jesus did, but also what his followers did after him. We get to learn from this master teacher we get to embrace the things that he did. We get to watch how he lived his everyday life. And then we get this challenge of how do I put that into action in my own life? Luke acts as an account of how God has and is working in the world. This writer Luke wants us to know God has done something very significant. Jesus has died and risen again. That is spectacular in itself. And based on that, he's taken a group of people who look just like you and me and he's using them to transform the world around them. This is the central heart to this book. And I want to give you this little passage first to give you a snippet of what you can look for as we go through this series and what you can look for today. Just 
how and who Jesus is trying to reach people. This is Luke chapter 4, if you're following along in a text. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is how Jesus introduces everything that he's going to do. And I want to pick out this little verse here, good news to the poor. Who are the poor? In our understanding, right, we think of people that don't have any money. That's our general definition of poor. And yet, in this world, in this first century Jewish world, the poor means so much more than that. The poor is everyone who is downtrodden, everyone who lives their life on the margins. In this society, women were classed as being part of the poor. People with bad jobs, jobs that no one else wanted, were part of the poor. People that couldn't get by, that were struggling with everyday life. People that were rejected. The people on the margins were the poor. And Jesus says, right at the beginning, as he announces what he's going to do, he says, I've come for those people. Those are the people that need me. That that is why I'm here. I'm going to bring life to them, to a group of people that weren't used to good things, to good narratives being associated with their lives, people that felt they were constantly rejected and kept on the outsides of society. Luke uses this word, patokos, which simply means downtrodden. The people that feel like people are constantly stepping on them. If you feel like that, the good news is that Jesus says that he has a message for you. And so for the next couple of chapters, from chapter 4 through to this passage we're going to look at in chapter 5, verse 27, Jesus does exactly that. He brings good news to the poor. He heals people that need healing. They would have been considered poor. He releases people struggling with mental illness. They would have been considered part of the poor. He lifts up people on the fringes of society. And then we come to this guy, to a guy called Levi. And I think our question will be, does he fit in that group? After this, Jesus went out and saw a toll collector by the name of Levi sitting at his toll booth. Some of your Bibles in front of you may say tax collector. That's fine. It's not a huge difference. Toll is just a particular nuance. Follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up and left everything and followed him. After this, Jesus went out and saw a toll collector. What is a toll collector? What do they do? So you guys understand tolls, right? You have that irritating movement, a moment where you're driving down 470 and you get to the moment where it crosses I-25 and you're like, why am I paying money now to drive on a highway that the government paid for? It feels like I already paid for this, and yet you do. Apparently, some people are very unhappy about this. This was a whole petition to stop unfair 470 tolls east of I-25 in the Denver metro area. It got 15 supporters. Um, So apparently, most people aren't that upset. And if you are upset, or you missed your window of opportunity, you could have really put in a good good protest here. But it's passed. We're going to stick with this toll system forever. The ancient world was not that much different. There were official taxes, like head taxes and things like that, that the the Jewish officials would collect. And then there were all these other little detailed things, things that were a bit arbitrary. You might walk down a particular road and someone would claim a toll. You might have to cross a particular bridge and someone would claim a toll. Now, the Roman government, the people that ran everything in those days, they were very, very uninterested in doing the difficult work of collecting tolls That was way beneath them. What they wanted to do was find some people who would do that for them. So they would put it out to contract. They would say, how much toll money do you think you could get us? And and you would say, I think I can raise this much. And then you would pay the Roman government to take that contract. And then you had to do the hard work of getting all of that money back. You had to start raising the money that you'd already spent buying the contract. 
So the toll collectors, the people that did that, how would you guess they were perceived by society around them? Generally, these guys are the lowest of the low. The writer, Joel B. Green, who writes a commentary on the book of Luke, says these guys are like snitches. I found Huggy Bear from Starsky and Hutch. For those of you guys who remember Huggy Bear, he's considered a snitch in his time or an urban informant in his language. He's like, I'm no snitch. An urban informant is different to that. A snitch wears a wire. A snitch is the scum of the information industry. A snitch has no soul. And, and we still have that language today, right? Snitches get stitches. We've told that to our daughter when she snitches on her younger sister. And she's like, no, they don't. They get hugs, they get cuddles, they get rewarded. She's already on, on the, the snitch side of things. But there's this, there's this idea that there's a certain type of people that we dislike, that we, we think are low characters. That, in Joel B. Green's idea, is that's exactly what toll collectors of the day were like. They were the worst of the worst, the lowest of the low. They made money by overcharging other people to walk on roads. They were the lowest of the low. Nobody wanted them around. They were not invited to nice dinner parties. They were not invited to good conversations around the table. But my question from all of this is, if Jesus says he's come for the downtrodden, well, is Levi really downtrodden? Chances are he's pretty rich. Chances are he's making his money off good, hardworking people. Is he really one of the downtrodden? Why is Jesus interested in Levi when Levi, by nature, He's probably one of the richer people in the area just based on the way that he can abuse the system. We know that these tax collectors are despised, though, because, John, uh, because Luke will say when, when John the Baptist is doing his baptism stuff, even tax collectors came to be baptized. There's this idea to Luke that I can't believe these people, if, if they're coming, surely anyone can come. Luke is, is baffled that these tax collectors will be coming to him for baptism. They are the worst, the lowest. But when you look at this word downtrodden, this, this word patokos, which I just gave you, it has this sort of undertone meaning. At its heart, the word means one who cowers, one who crouches down, one who doesn't want to be observed, one who feels despised. Is all there in the root of this word. And when you think about how society perceives Levi, maybe he does fit the definition of downtrodden. Maybe someone who nobody wants to include is that person. We don't know anything about Levi's character. All we know is that generally, generally as a rule, tax collectors, toll collectors, were, were sort of potentially manipulating the system. They were potentially stealing money from good, hardworking people in order to make themselves richer. But we don't know that was true of Levi particularly. What we do know, though, is whether he is good in his character or bad in his character, he will be despised by everybody around him. Maybe that is part of the definition of downtrodden. Maybe being forced out onto the margins is downtrodden. If, if downtrodden means one who cowers, one who doesn't want to be seen, one who feels abused, feels attacked, feels left out, then maybe he is included in that. As I tried to give you a picture image of this, I thought about a hedgehog, which this is a hedgehog. It may not look like one. It's a hedgehog and a boar. And what hedgehogs do is when they feel attacked, when they feel like they're in danger, they wrap themselves up into a tiny boar. And when you put your hand on them, you find them to be prickly because they're in a defensive posture. And I wonder about any of the people that you found in your encounters. Man, this person is just a prickly character. I wonder how much of it is, is about them being vicious or attacking. I wonder how much of it is just a defensive posture. 
And I wonder if some of Levi's story is sort of caught up in that. I wonder how he feels is treated by society around him. There's a good chance that Levi feels like he knows what it is to live life on the margins. This guy may not fit into the classic definition of poor, but he probably feels pretty rejected by those around him. And so that makes what Jesus does rather fascinating. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Levi makes on the surface this incredibly rash decision. In a moment's notice, he gets up and leaves everything he's ever known, leaves his income supply, all of those different things, and says, I'm going to follow this itinerant rabbi who is wandering around the countryside teaching people. It seems like an, an audacious decision to make. But when we know something about the history, know something about what Levi can expect from life, it starts to make sense because Levi, as we've touched on already, is a guy who probably knows his place. In the first century, the Jewish education system said this, we're going to educate every male Jewish child. And around the age of 11, we're going to start to say, you don't quite cut the academic standard. So you go and find an uncle, find your father, find someone who can teach you a trade and learn that trade. And then they do the same about 16, 17 years old. If you've done high school sports, it's exactly the same process. It's that vicious moment where you have to tell students, no, you don't make it, you're cut, you're done. You can go and play JV, but you're not varsity. This is this moment that Levi will have gone through with all other Jewish boys, and they would take the cream of the crop up to 30 and educate them, and then they would become rabbis themselves and go out and gather their own followers. Levi knows by nature of the fact he's doing this job. No rabbi is coming to you and saying, come and follow me. You're never going to be included in that elite of society. And yet here is Jesus this guy who was becoming something of a celebrity in his local area, walking up to the tax booth and saying, Levi, come follow me. Come be involved in what I'm doing. Come learn from me. Yes, listen to my teaching, but actually watch my action. Watch how I act in the world around me. Take all of that in, and then you go and do the same. And this Levi character, he seems pretty intuitive in how he's going to go about that. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. What's the first thing that Levi has intuited from Jesus? The first thing he has learned by watching him, that Jesus cares about those on the margins. Jesus is interested in those on the fringes. And Levi's first action as he sits down with Jesus is, is to say, you on the outside, come in. There's more room at this table. I'm going to bring you in. Levi takes his table and he makes it available. He takes his circle of influence. He takes the group that he has influence over and says, I'm going to bring them into what Jesus is already doing. And, and for those of you that have followed Jesus for a while, you may be familiar with the language of kingdom. What is a kingdom when you think about it? A kingdom is the area that you have influence or rulership over. And the truth is that you, each one of you, you have a kingdom. Maybe not in the normal sense, but you have this circle of influence, this group of people that you have influence over, and coming into what Jesus is doing is really at its heart saying, I'm going to dethrone myself from that. I'm going to take myself from the center, and I'm going to place Jesus there. When, when Levi sits at his table and says, I'm going to invite in the outside, those on the margins, he takes his table and he makes it available. He copies what he has seen Jesus do already. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors 
and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who belonged to their sect, complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So anytime you see this little line here, the teachers of the law, it's talking about a group of people called scribes. These group of, this group of people, their job, their entire existence was to go through the detailed law that Jewish people already had and get all of the possible details out of it. We're going to get to the very core, the very heart of the minute details that you have to follow to stay in check. You know some people like this. They're the people that when you play Monopoly, have like some really detailed rule about how you have to play, and they're like, no, I'm going to insist. We used to play it that, like, that way as a kid, and we have to play it that way now. I know because I have a bunch of family and friends that are watching online that are like, yeah, you, you are that guy. You are the guy that always ruins the fun with these detailed little rules, and that's who these guys are. They, they want to know why Jesus will bring in those from the margins. Why does he care about them? And the question I have for, for us is, why are they so upset? What about this process? What about Jesus simply sitting and having a meal with someone bothers them so much? Because I'll sit and eat with pretty much anyone. If you guys are paying for a meal, just let me know because I'll be there. I'm pretty shameless. And I'll even pay for some of you guys as well. Like I, I, I just enjoy this process of sitting down and eating. And, and yet these guys are bothered by a meal. Why? Why are they so bothered? Really, to understand this, we have to understand how important a meal was to an Eastern culture. To sit down with someone over a meal like this was to share intimacy, was to be involved in what they were doing and to suggest that, that they too were involved with you, that you were connected on some level. In other Eastern cultures, there would be the language of, you've shared my salt. Once you've shared my salt, you can no longer betray me in any particular way. And that's for, for those of us that are Western people, it's so important to understand when Jesus sits at that table, the Last Supper before he's crucified, and he says to them, one of you that is eating with me, one of you will betray me. To an Eastern person, that's got this horror of weight. You're sitting sharing bread with him, and you're about to betray him. The horror doesn't compute to a Western world, but to an Eastern world, once you've shared bread... You never go back on that. That's why in many Eastern cultures, even today, you might, you might go out selling something on the streets and someone will be eating and you'll stop at the door and they'll say, oh, come in, have a bite to eat. There's something sacred about that act of sharing food together that was ingrained in this society. So, so when we read that Jesus is pulling in those that are sinners, that those that are outside, you are eating with tax collectors and sinners. You're eating with the dregs of society and by nature of eating with them, you're saying they're included in what you're doing. You're saying that they're, they're okay, that they're not outcasts. You're pulling them in from the margins. To this group of people, that is a horror. How can you do that? And yet this is Jesus' response. It is not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus' response is, I'm here for those on the edge. For those on the fringe, for those that you never thought to include, for those that didn't get an invite, for those that didn't wake up early, for those that feel like they get left behind somewhere in the process, for, so, for those that feel that life is sort of passing them by and they don't know how to keep up, that's who I came for. This Luke Acts, this one big story, it has these two big surprises to it. 
there's this huge surprise that Jesus died and rose again. In their minds, Jesus wasn't supposed to die. He was supposed to come as a conquering king. He was supposed to overthrow the rulers. He was supposed to make everything good again, and, and yet he dies, and, and even more surprisingly, comes back to life again. This is the one big surprise that Luke has to deal with. But the other big surprise is this. Jesus would start to include the outsider. Jesus would start to care and bring in those that were on the fringe. And this didn't stop with him. This continued with his followers that would continue the tradition after he was gone constantly. These were people that were reaching out to the outsider, but it caused a turn of confusion. This is Acts chapter 10, next book in the series. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized. He's talking about a group of non-Jewish people that had said that they now believed in Jesus. They have had this experience where God has done something. They have experienced transformation in the Bible's language. The Spirit now lives inside of them. They are part of what is going on because God has said yes to them in some way. But the whole question is, what do we do to, to show that? And Peter's like, well, we, we dunk them in water. We baptize them just like we baptized everybody else. These people that are on the outside, God has already spoken. He has said that they are included, and now we're going to show that publicly. We're going to do this thing that says, no, they're in as well. They are no longer on the margins. They are now in the center. Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So we ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. There's this moment where they're like, wow, the outsiders have been brought in. What can we do to stand in the way? God has said he's bringing in people from the fringes, from the margins. We can't stop that. It's already happened. Luke deals with the surprise that Jesus died and rose again, but the baffling surprise that the outsiders were now involved in what God is doing. So they said, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. They open the floodgates and the whole thing changes from that moment. It starts with the outsider Jewish, the downtrodden, the poor, the, the people that aren't included, and it continues to the people that aren't even Jewish, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and the table expands and expands and expands. There is always room for more at this table. And one of the things I love about this is how I saw this work out in my parents' life. Uh, in my family life, my parents had that interesting house. The door was always open, especially on Saturday. The, they never locked it, really. Like At night, yes, but in the day, it was, just, it was just open. And during Saturday, particularly, this sort of ragtag bunch of maybe misfits would wander through the door at different times of the day. People that just weren't included in most people's invitation. They would wander in, and if my parents were busy, they would stand and make themselves a cup of tea in very English fashion. Then they would sit at the table and maybe chat to some other people that were there. And, and this would happen over and over again. There, there was always people just coming and going. And then occasionally, those people would stay for dinner. There would just be more people that could fit at the table. So my parents had this moment where they would say, okay, we need to do something here. And, and the table would be gathered up. What can go wrong here, hey? This is going to be fine. The table would be gathered up. And my dad would say to my brother and I, I need you to go down to the, the shed at the bottom of the yard. And I want you to go and grab this piece of wood that had been there for like time immemorial. No one really knew why it was there. But he'd send my brother and I down and we would have to carry this huge thing. This isn't it, by the way. I didn't ship it over to America just for this. 
Um, and it was way bigger than this. But we would carry it all the way up the garden, from the bottom of the yard by the shed to the top, and we would place it over the table. I'm going to make sure it's centered because I know some of you are OCD enough that you won't hear a word I say if it's not centered. Let's make sure we get it right. There we go. And my brother and I would know at this point that this meant that there may not be enough food for us, but then this was the way that we would go about making room for more. Now, the interesting thing with this is that the table never looked quite as good at this point, but it was better, if that makes sense. It may not have been as neat, it may not have been as organized, everything may not be in the proper place, but there was this moment where now, suddenly, there was room for more. I saw this in my parents' life over and over again. I saw people that the church itself often rejected. People that the church had said over them, you seem like you're demon-possessed or something. You seem like an outsider. You seem broken. I'm not sure you can be fixed. And I saw my parents invite these people in. I saw people that tried to commit suicide that my parents sat with. That my parents, in some real sense, helped rescue. I saw people that wouldn't be alive today if my parents hadn't had this open door and this table that could expand to make room for more. I saw them mirror their own rabbi, Jesus. I saw them mirror the way that he had made room for the outcasts, that he had made room for those on the margins. I saw them operate their table as a church, but a church that functioned the way that it was supposed to function, that didn't have a no-entry sign for anybody, that said anybody is welcome here. This table is open to everybody. This is a passage from a book by a lady called Sarah Massey. And she writes this as a tribute to one of her friends, another author who passed away, and this is how she described this person's character. It was she who pulled up more chairs to the table and scooted over to make room, who made us laugh and made us think, who was bold and courageous and kind, who would not be budged from her conviction that this gospel is good news for everyone, who moved to the margins because she knew that this is the center of God's story. I don't know exactly what Jesus is doing when he sits with Levi and the other tax collectors. I don't know if he's moving from the center to the margins or he's making the margins the center, and I don't know that it really matters, but what I do know is that Jesus saw a group of people for whom there was no good news and says, I have good news for you. This is a brief summary of the book of Acts and Luke that the writer um, Daryl Buck gives. Jesus is the Lord of all, so the gospel, the message and work of Jesus... Well, it can go to all. That is, in a nutshell, what Luke and Acts is about. Jesus is looking for anybody, it seems, that is willing to have him. How does all this connect with what we're about to do in this horse trough over here, this ancient sort of ritual of baptism? What we see is this group of outsiders, God acknowledges that they are accepted and included by giving them his spirit. By literally coming to dwell inside them. That's what we as followers of Jesus believe happens. There's this moment where you accept Jesus that he comes to dwell inside you. And it was shown through baptism. But there's something else going on as well. It happened through the Spirit. It was shown through baptism. But it started at a table. It started at a table where Jesus sat with someone on the fringes of society. And just by sitting with them, included them in what he was doing. I saw this on a friend's wall and it just captivated me. Our tables will become 
our churches. That is the dream of building a bigger table, this table that constantly expands. And when we are doing that, we are mirroring what Jesus did. So my question for you as we move towards baptisms is this. Is your table available? How fixed is your circle? How willing are you for Jesus to take it and mess with it? How willing are you to find those that are outsiders, that are on the margins, that nobody else is inviting? How willing are you for them to end up at your table? Or is your table too fixed? There may not be a giant piece of wood down at the bottom of your yard behind a shed, but there has to be a plan to say, how can I make room for more? Because at this table of Jesus, there is always room for more. Is your table available? And who will you make room for? Who will you make room for at your table? If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. You can give online at southfellowship.org/give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks for listening, South Family. Have a great rest of your day.